Hello, and welcome to the AK-47 podcast. My name is Kristen Gonsi, and I am going to actually read a piece of Colin Ty's writing today, as promised. I know that the last five or so episodes have been slight diversions from Colin Ty's actual writing, but I thought it was important to try to give a little bit of context to the historical situation within which she found herself, as well as to spend some time with my daughter talking about the relevance of what Colin Ty is writing and thinking about for the present day. So I hope you will forgive me for doing all of these bonus episodes and guest episodes and readings of newspaper articles, because as much as I think Colin Ty's writing is so important and relevant to 2023, I also think it's, you know, one of those interesting moments in time where people are starting to question whether or not it's even valuable to go back and read people who were writing in the early part of the 20th century or even the late part of the 19th century, because the world that we live in is so incredibly different today than it was then. And are the things that they're saying and thinking really relevant, especially given the fact that they have a lot of blinders on? And, you know, especially in the case of Colin Ty, as we heard in the last episode, she did not really appreciate the faithful. She did not really have a very enlightened view of religion, even though religion in the case of Russia at the time and the Soviet Union at the time was very important to the very women that she was hoping to emancipate. And in many ways, by not recognizing the importance of faith in women's lives at that particular moment of time, she actually kind of undermined her own agenda, particularly in the case of the requisition of the Alexander Nevsky Monastery that we talked about in the last episode. And so I'm going to read another piece of writing. I think maybe this season will be a season of perhaps criticism of Kalantai by looking at some of the ways that the press, you know, saw her, but also, you know, some of her shortcomings. And, and you know, and one of her shortcomings was really a focus, I think, on pro-natalism, meaning that it was really difficult for her to conceive of a time when women could choose not to have children and that women would not want to have children. Now, it's important here that Colin Ty herself was a mother, but she did have only one child and she kind of abandoned that child when he was young in order to go off to Switzerland and complete her education. But she really did very much see motherhood as a kind of fundamental part of women's identity at this particular period of time. Now, to be fair to Colin Ty, for most women in the late 19th century and the early 20th century, certainly up to 1952 when Colin Ty died, motherhood was very much an essential part of their identity. They viewed themselves as mothers or potential mothers. It was a very small subset of the population of women who were able to imagine themselves outside of those predetermined roles, partially because of the very traditional influence of the church, as Paige and I talked about in the last episode, but also because, let's face it, without 
birth control, unless you chose to be a celibate, if you became a nun and you joined a religious order, your life was going to be one of pregnancy and motherhood, unless you had access to abortion, which I think it's really important to point out here that Cullen Tye supported between 1920 and 1936, women's access to abortion. However, she really does have somewhat historical blinders on. I mean, in the case that in her particular time period, it was extremely hard for her to imagine a world in which women would, A, choose to be single and be able to support themselves as single women, B, choose to not be mothers and to be perfectly happy in their choice not to be mothers. I think to a certain extent, that world was still very much in the future for Colin Ty. And so the piece that I'm going to read today is a piece where she really does show her pronatalism very obviously. And at the same time, I want to recognize that it's important that Colin Ty was trying to do the best she could for women in her particular historical era based on what they thought at that time was a fundamental part of their roles in society, that is to be mothers. And so, you know, it's tricky always when you're reading these historical texts. And I don't want to be an apologist for Colin Ty for the dumb things that she did, like the bad timing of the requisitioning of the Alexander Nevsky Monastery, which created a lot of problems for her. And, you know, she might have had more influence and more power within the Bolshevik government, especially as regards women's issues, had she not made that very kind of fateful blunder, because it did put the Bolsheviks on guard with regard to Kalantai, because they felt that she had acted without their permission, and that she had acted rashly, and that she had forced the hand of the Bolsheviks to rush the separation of church and state at a really critical moment in this early history when, as again, my colleague Paige mentioned, a civil war was looming. Not that the civil war didn't come anyway, but certainly in terms of antagonizing the faithful, Kalantai made some mistakes. Similarly, I do think that Kalantai really did sort of imagine a world in which women really needed their fundamental rights could only be recognized if the state provided them help with their reproductive roles in society. She had a really hard time imagining a world where women were independent or liberated from the strictures of motherhood. Partially, again, because most women at this particular time all over the world were still very much under the impression that the primary purpose of a woman was to have a child and or children or many children and to raise those children to adulthood. So with that kind of preface, today I'm going to read a piece from 1918 called The First Steps Towards the Protection of Motherhood. This was obviously published while Colin Ty was still very much involved as the Commissar of Social Welfare, and it lays out her vision for how the Bolshevik state can alleviate the burden of social reproduction on women. Okay, so this is Kalantai, finally. 
The idea of establishing a department for the protection of mother and child arose in the heat of the October battles. The basic principles underlying the work of the department and the related statutes on provision for mothers and expectant mothers were drafted at the first conference of women workers immediately following the Bolshevik Revolution. The conference was summoned at my suggestion as a member of the Central Committee, and we set up a lead group of women Bolsheviks at the editorial board of the magazine Rabotnitsa, Woman Worker. This first conference of the representatives of women industrial workers to be held in Russia had the task of building together the female working masses who had spontaneously inclined towards the revolution, supporting the Soviets and the Bolsheviks. The conference was attended by more than 500 women delegates from the factories and plants of Petrograd. The preparations for the conference were marked by lively enthusiasm and evoked interest and eager response among the awakening masses of women workers who had already had their own team of workers grouped around the magazine Robotnica. At the conference, the main demands of Bolshevik women workers were put forward and adopted. Prominent among these demands was the question of protection and provision for motherhood. In a modest building somewhere on Bolotnaya Street, in the very midst of the October Revolution, when the approaches to Petrograd had still not been completely cleared of the troops of the provisional government, when something akin to a self-appointed government of Mensheviks and socialist revolutionaries was still sitting in the city Duma in Petrograd, Women workers were engaged in businesslike and enthusiastic discussions on the measures that should be immediately introduced by the Soviet government in order to protect working mothers and their babies. On 6th November 1917, I delivered a speech on the protection of motherhood in my capacity as a member of the party central committee and secretary of the leading group of women workers. My theses were taken as the basis for discussion. The women workers attending the conference listened to my report with great interest and took an active part in the discussions and the elaboration of the theses. These theses were then passed on as guidelines to the People's Commissariat for State Welfare and the People's Commissariat for Labor, which then included the Department of Social Security. If the legislation on protection and provision for motherhood now in force is compared with these adopted at the first conference of women workers, it is clear that it was precisely the aspirations expressed at the conference that served as a basis for the Soviet legislation in this area. It should therefore be noted that the initiative on the issue of protection and provision for mother and child came from the working women themselves. At that time, very few working women actively participated in the Soviets. But from the very first days of Soviet power, working women were able to contribute constructively to the work of the Soviets as regards lightening the burden of motherhood for women. The measures to protect and provide for motherhood were carried through in the first months of the Soviet government by two people's commissariats, the People's Commissariats for Social Welfare and the People's Commissariat for Labor. The latter drew up a series of statutes in the field of social legislation. 
the People's Commissariat for Social Welfare carried through the measures designed for mothers. The first concern of the People's Commissariat for Social Welfare was to maintain and rebuild the huge children's homes in Petrograd and Moscow in order to convert these angel factories into homes for mother and child. The People's Commissariat of Social Welfare also took control of all the existing creches, consultation centers, and children's homes, very few in number, that had been founded before the revolution by charitable organizations. In order to take possession of these institutions and run them in accord with Soviet policy, the People's Commissariat for Social Welfare first had to form a section of social investigation whose members included a large number of working women from factories and plants. Its first task was to investigate all institutions whose work was connected with the protection of mother and child and to deal with the open sabotage of their staff and administrators. In December 1917, that is, six weeks after power had been transferred into the hands of the proletariat, it became clear that the People's Commissariat of Social Welfare required a special center to supervise the work being done in the sphere of protection for mother and child if it was to cope with the increasing demand and workload. On 31st December 1917, the People's Commissariat issued a decree on the creation of a board whose task was to set up a department for the protection of mother and child. The Soviet government is the first government in the world to officially and legally recognize maternity as one of the social functions of women and basing itself on the fact that in a republic of working people, women will always have this particular labor obligation towards society. And here, Kalantai is specifically talking about the obligation of bearing and bringing up the next generation. It has proposed the problem of providing for motherhood from this new point of view. During the first months of Soviet power, the People's Commissariat of Social Welfare concentrated on the organization and reorganization of those institutions which could help lighten the burden of motherhood and combat the high infant mortality rate. With the decree issued on 20th of January, 1918, the People's Commissariat for Social Welfare began to set in order and reorganize lying-in hospitals, that is, maternity wards. The decree ordered that all lying-in hospitals and all centers, clinics, and institutes of gynecology and midwifery be transferred to the Department for the Protection of Mother and Child. The decree also ordered that medical services for expectant mothers be organized on the basis of three new principles. One, that medical assistance be available to all needy mothers, i.e., that the doors of lying in hospitals be opened precisely to the poorest sections of the female population, workers, peasants, and office workers. Two, that doctors be paid a state salary so as to abolish the advantages enjoyed by more prosperous women able to pay the doctor for his services, thereby ending the inequality between poor and prosperous expectant and nursing mothers. Three, 
that expectant and nursing mothers, particularly the poor, be protected against a view which saw them as sacrifices to science, on whom unskilled midwives and young students gained practice. No one, noted the decree, has the right to view a woman fulfilling her sacred but painful civic duty of motherhood as a sacrifice to science. The decree also replaced one-year midwifery courses with two-year courses, and the training of midwives were permitted to assist at deliveries only in the second year. So just a quick aside to say, obviously, at this particular moment in time, poor women were being used to train unskilled midwives, and the Bolshevik decree basically meant that all women would be treated equally, whether they were rich or poor. You can't really disagree with that, I suppose. All right, even if it's very pronatalist. Back to Colin Tai. The next step taken by the Board for the Protection of Mother and Child was to bring together in one state organization all the institutions caring for mother and child in the pre- and post-natal periods, and all institutions involved in child care, from children's homes to village creches. A decree issued by the People's Commissariat of Social Welfare on the 31st of January, 1918, instructed the Department for the Protection of Mother and Child to create a network of institutions which would bring up for the Soviet Republic spiritually and physically strong and healthy citizens. This same degree also ordered the creation of a model palace of motherhood and the conversion of all the lying-in hospitals and children's homes in Moscow and Petrograd into one general institution to be known as the Moscow Children's Institute and the Petrograd Children's Institute. Children's homes were renamed Young Children's Palaces. The increasing scope of activity undertaken by the Department for the Protection of Mother and Child and the enthusiastic response this activity elicited among working women obliged the People's Commissariat of Social Welfare to broaden the composition of the Board for the Protection of Motherhood to include men and women representatives of the trade unions, health insurance, the Petrograd District Soviets, and the editorial board of the magazine Robotnica. By a decree issued on 31st January, the board was reorganized into a commission whose activity was to pursue three basic aims. One, protection of the child, i.e. the reduction of infant mortality. Two, the upbringing of the child in an atmosphere corresponding to the broad concept of the socialist family, the organization of mother and baby homes, laying the basis for social upbringing from the very first days of the child's life. Three, the creation of a healthy environment in which the child can develop both physically and spiritually. Okay, so that is a reading of an abridged version of this 1918 piece, The First Steps Towards the Protection of Motherhood. And I just want to highlight a couple of things before we end this episode. The first is that Kalantai makes it very clear that the demands for this mother and childhood department came from working women themselves. To the extent that Kalantai was in a position of great power, she did pay attention to what women wanted, meaning that they wanted help with this quote-unquote burden of motherhood. 
I also think it's important that she says that some of the very policies that she passed in her time as Commissar of Social Welfare were policies that had been discussed and voted upon at this Congress of Working Women. So even though it's very easy from the vantage point of 2023 to go back and read Kalantai and see her as really very problematically pro-natalist. I mean, she talks explicitly here about women's obligation to society to bring up the next generation. You know, she talks about kind of women's roles in this very essentialist way, because for her, women's biology is is destiny. I mean, and and she's writing this in 1918. It's over 100 years ago. And for many women at that particular period of time, it really was destiny. I mean, it's a great thing that it's not for us anymore. But I think it's really important to recognize that Colin Ty was part of the reason why it isn't destiny for people who are born with the equipment to make babies anymore. Because here she's really saying that the state has a role in helping to raise the next generation, that this burden should not fall disproportionately on those who are the baby makers and rearers, that there should be a kind of recognition that the work that is done in raising the next generation, in bearing the next generation, is socially valuable work for all of society, and therefore all of society should help pay for it. Now, these are discussions that are happening in the United States. They're happening in the UK. They're happening around the world. People are really worried very much about the declining birth rates in many advanced industrialized late capitalist countries. And let's face it, declining birth rates are kind of bad news for capitalism because fewer people ultimately mean fewer consumers. And I I do think that although Kalantai herself in this particular historical period of time was very pro-natalist, I think that if she was around in 2023, that she would be very much in favor of people who call themselves birth strikers, those who are choosing not to start families, those who are choosing not to bring a next generation into the world as a way of protesting late capitalism, global inequality, climate crises, and all of the other things that are afflicting us in the present day. So that being said, you know, again, I'm always a little bit uncomfortable with these anachronistic readings of Kalantai because I feel like they uncharitably read her out of the context. For 1918, she was being incredibly progressive And I also think that even in 2023, a lot of women, a lot of families, a lot of people out there would really like to have some sort of support to help them raise the next generation. And I think it's really important to recognize that Kalantai is the forerunner of things like kindergartens and creches and daycare and maternity leaves and parental leaves and child allowances and all the sorts of policies that different states, not the United States, unfortunately, have instituted in order to help support families. And that if you ask working class people, even today in 2023, that many of them just need a little help and that the state could be in a position to provide that help. 
So anyway, thank you as always so very much for listening and keep up the good fight. Yeah.